One of the central themes of our faith is that Christ is Lord of all. And there are people who want to limit that to our hearts or to spiritual things or to heaven. But no, he is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the resurrection, as Rodney pointed out right from the beginning, and uh, his incarnation uh, and his even now being uh, enthroned in the flesh indicates that even the material world is subject to him. And so the scripture I'm going to read, very, very simple, and yet very, very complicated. <laughs> Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as we study it, that our hearts would be filled with glory at the awesome conquest that Jesus Christ has made in his resurrection and the promise of our own. We pray that you would uh, open the eyes of our understanding and uh, that you would bless us as we continue to worship and to interact with your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of our faith. and You're all familiar with the way that this doctrine has been attacked down through history, not just by agnostics and atheists, but by Muslims and liberals, theological liberals. But in recent years, there is a movement uh, amongst evangelicals that has hugely muddied the waters on the doctrine of the resurrection. And I don't usually like to preach on controversies on Resurrection Day, but I felt that I must today. But I hope uh, in the process, toward the end, you will find that this is an incredibly encouraging verse. Uh, there's, uh, this is one of the little-known passages on the resurrection of Jesus, and if you want a nuclear weapon in debating the full preterists out there on the subject of the resurrection, this verse is it. It's an incredibly powerful verse. Now, initially, it may not seem so. Uh, in fact, you may be puzzled by some things that are in it because uh, there, there is some obscurity uh, to the verse. Uh, and some of you have friends who are full preterists. You already know exactly what I'm talking about. And others of you have no idea what full preterism even is. So let me define the problem before uh, we show how this passage answers the problem. I'll first of all point out that every Christian, if they're an Orthodox Christian, is preterist in some passages. All preterist means, if you look at grammar, you know, there is a preterist tense. It just means it's past. And so every Christian who believes that Jesus Christ was born, who suffered and died for your sins and was resurrected, is a preterist on at least some passages. He believes they've been fulfilled. He's not looking for the Messiah to come in the future, okay? But full preterism is an entirely different creature. It's completely different. It goes way beyond that. Full preterism is a rather new teaching in evangelical circles that says that all prophecy in the entire Bible has been fulfilled and there is no future judgment day. There is no future resurrection. Uh, there is no future second coming of Christ. Okay, the resurrection happened in 70 AD. That's when the final separation of the sheep and the goats happened. 
everything was fulfilled in AD 70, and uh, they think that the 40 years was the 1,000 years of Revelation 20, and then at 70 AD, he hands over the kingdom to the Father. Very odd. You wouldn't think very many people would hold to it, but it is a growing movement. And this verse contradicts their faulty views of the resurrection. All full preterists deny that these bodies that we can touch, that we live in right now, will be resurrected and changed. John Bray, an evangelical Baptist writer, worded it this way. We're not interested in this old body surviving. Or as John Noe said it, our emotional attachment to our bodies will be no different than our attachment to those body parts we cut off and discarded last week. Hair, fingernails, etc. He says we want to get rid of these bodies. Now I can understand wanting to get rid of our sin-frail bodies, uh, getting rid of uh, that which uh, is very scarred by sin, and nobody believes uh, we're going to be continuing on with frail bodies in eternity, but these full preterists do not even want these bodies to be redeemed. Noe says we're going to discard this body. We do not want to resurrect it. In another page he said, that physical life wasn't lost in Adam, therefore it's not restored in Christ, nor will it be. So there's a pattern as you read through their writings that there is a denial of any resurrection of these bodies that we can touch and feel. It's Kelly Burks, who is a recently deceased uh, pastor that was in Omaha uh, here, said about Romans 8.23. Here, Paul is referring to eagerly awaiting to be set free from our bodies. Well, the early church said that's a doctrine of Gnostics. Okay, to be set free from the physical world and to go to a non-physical heaven with non-physical bodies. But that's exactly what all full preterists uh, are, are, are teaching. They say that we don't want these bodies that we can touch and feel right now. We do not want them to be resurrected. We want something non-material. And for that matter, they're wanting to escape from a material universe into a non-material uh, world forever. Now when you bring up passages like Job 19 verse 26 where Job talks about sinews and flesh and skin rotting and then being uh, resurrected and seeing Christ, they will say, well it can't possibly mean a, a physical resurrection of his body because his body was evaporated, you know, after probably a thousand years there was nothing to resurrect. They say that Job was given a non-physical resurrection in AD 70. And there's no connection. Maybe there is a, a blueprint that would be similar, but there's no connection with the old body and the new body. And they use various techniques to prove that there can be no physical connection and to try to discredit the traditional uh, resurrection as being impossible. For example, evangelical writer David Curtis starts by quoting M.C. Tenney with this problem. He says, when the body of Roger Williams, founder of the Rhode Island colony, was exhumed for burial, it was found that the root of an apple tree had penetrated the head of the coffin, had followed down Williams' spine, dividing into a fork at the legs. The tree had absorbed the chemicals of the decaying body and had transmuted them into its wood and fruit. The apples, in turn, had been eaten by people quite unconscious of the fact that they were indirectly taking into their systems part of the long-dead Williams. The objection may therefore be raised, how 
Out of the complex sequence of decay, absorption, and new formation, will it be possible to resurrect believers of past ages and to reconstitute them as separate entities? And Curtis goes on to amplify on that problem. He says, this problem of joint ownership of atoms and molecules is a big problem. After death, various body particles returned to dust, re-entered the food chain, got assimilated into plants eaten by animals, digested into countless other human bodies. At the resurrection, who gets which atoms and molecules back? As you can see, it can get quite complicated. Another thing that bothered me was why does God raise our dead, decayed bodies, put them all back together, just to change them into immortal spiritual bodies? Well, I will admit that this is a puzzle, but if God says he will do it, he will do it. If God made Adam out of dust, which, by the way, did not look anything like Adam, and if he made Eve out of a, a piece of rib from Adam, which didn't look anything like Eve, God can take some part of the old, however many molecules he needs, and transmute them into a new body just as he did with them. Though the vision of the scattered dry bones in Ezekiel 37 is said by many pre-mills, on-mills, and post-mills to be a metaphor of the restoration of Israel, um, and there's debate on that, is it a literal resurrection, is it not? It doesn't matter. Either way you take it, if it is a metaphor, then the metaphor to be meaningful must mean that the real resurrection that is the metaphor of that restoration uh, it's easy for God to, to, to put together these scattered bones in the resurrection. Okay, They're hopelessly scattered, and yet he resurrects them. Compared to the myriad problems and contradictions that you find in full preterism, I think this problem is really nothing. So if you're weighing on a scale, you know, the problems full preterism presents, it says, okay, how on earth could God reconstitute a cremated body then what you're doing is you're questioning God's omnipotence on this side of the scale, but on the other side of the scale, of necessity, there are numerous doctrines, hopelessly confused doctrines, that the full preterists hold to, and if you're weighing, casting out these doctrines versus God's omnipotence, I'll take God's omnipotence uh, any day. So how do full preterists handle the many resurrection passages? Some just outright deny a physical resurrection ever happened or ever will happen. They hold to the corporate body view. Others claim that God raised our bodies in the first century as non-material bodies, and he will plop those bodies instantly onto our souls when we leave our bodies and when we go to heaven. So they claim we already have our resurrection bodies. They're floating in heaven somewhere, ready to be put upon us. Now, it's not made out of anything from our current body because our current body wasn't even in existence in 8070 when our resurrection bodies are supposedly made, but this is, their, this is their theory. They absolutely insist that flesh and bones, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and we'll look at that passage a little bit later on in the sermon. Uh, but the problem is that Philippians 3 verse 21 says that our resurrection body, whatever it is, is identical in form to Christ's resurrection body. It's the Greek word sumorphos, which the dictionary defines as having the same form. How do they explain that? 
Well, some like Hardin say, okay, it did have the same form, but Christ's resurrection body was not the body that they touched and that they felt. It wasn't a flesh and bones body. It was a previously raised body, and I'll explain that in a bit. So he says, okay, we'll take Philippians 3.21 seriously. Our body is like theirs. Curtis disagrees. Curtis says, no, 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 Philippians 3.21, and he tries to explain that away. There is no, different, there is no connection between the two. But when you appeal to Luke 24, verse 38, where Jesus said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. I've heard men like Hardin say, Oh, well, the, you know, the physical body that came out of the tomb, that was not his resurrection body. He got his resurrection body the moment he came up out of Hades, and then he temporarily inhabited this body that came out of the grave. It was a reanimated body just to prove to the disciples that he really had come out of the grave. It's really almost identical to the doctrine that Jehovah's Witnesses hold to on the resurrection. And there's some serious exegetical gymnastics going on with all full preterists. In any case, what it's, the problem with this, and this is one of the reasons, because some of you have friends who are full preterists, the reason this is so important to understand it's like a series of dominoes. You've seen those dominoes that are set up. You hit one, it hits the next, and before you know it, there's a whole bunch of dominoes that have fallen. This is the way it is with their doctrines. You reject this one doctrine, it affects other doctrines, and before you know it, there's a whole bunch of orthodox doctrines that are, are falling. For example, uh, there are many, if not a majority, but at least many of the full preterists today that deny that Genesis 1 is talking about the creation of this universe. You might wonder, well, what does that have to do with full preterism? It has a lot to do with full preterism because, remember, they said that every prophecy has been fulfilled, so they interpret 2 Peter chapter 3, the new heavens and the new earth burning up with a fervent heat, God making a new heavens and a new earth. He said, well, that all happened in AD 70. That's when the universe got burned up. It's apocalyptic language, which we saw. The Bible does not use apocalyptic language. Uh, when we were looking in Revelation, it's very literal. But they say it's apocalyptic language describing the destruction of the Mosaic, Mosaic covenant. Well, I predicted 20 years ago they're going to be forced by their exegesis, this domino effect, to deny that Genesis 1 is actually talking about creation. Sure enough, in recent years, many of these full preterists are saying Genesis 1 is talking about the creation of the Mosaic economy, has nothing whatsoever to do with the creation of the universe. Anyway, I'm not going to deal with all of those interrelated doctrines, those other dominoes. I want to use this passage to show that there was a real resurrection of corpses out of the ground in A.D. 30, and that God promises to raise our bodies in the future in exactly the same way. And we're going to be seeing... Uh, toward the end of the sermon, we're going to be saying this makes a remarkably huge difference in our outlook on life, uh, whether you have a Gnostic view or whether you have an Orthodox view of the resurrection. Now, before I dig into verse 19, let me give you some clues from the context that help to nail down this specific resurrection to AD 30. It cannot be any earlier. It cannot be any later. Now, I was tempted to dive straight into, into verse 19 and get into the good stuff, but 
I just can't do that. I have to get into some technical details. You're going to have to bear with me because otherwise, full preterists will wheeze a lot of this and say, okay, fine, something happened in AD 70. Now, we're going to see, even if we agree that something happened in AD 70, which I totally do not agree, but even if we say this was fulfilled in AD 70, this verse, it still completely contradicts the various views of full preterism on the nature of the body. So either way, they can't win. But let me give you some clues as to the time sequence. The first clue is given in verses 13 through 14. Okay. O Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead, they will not live, they are deceased, they will not rise, therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. The tyrants that had been persecuting God's people had already died, but verse 14 says that whatever resurrection he is going to be talking about in verse 19, it contains zero unbelievers. No unbelievers are going to rise during this resurrection. It says they are dead, they will not live, they are deceased, they will not rise. Now, unless you're willing to accept contradictions within the Bible, which I am not, that means that this cannot be the resurrection at the end of history, which very clearly includes unbelievers, and it cannot be the resurrection in AD 70, which Daniel chapter 12 indicates had both the just and the unjust, and actually Acts 24, verse 15, uses the same language as Daniel when it says, that there is about to be, it's the Greek word mellow, which means very soon, it's about to be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. That was a re reference to AD 70 resurrection. Now in contrast, whatever resurrection verse 19 is talking about, it can contain no unbelievers. Now that leaves only one other resurrection in history that is, at, is even remotely possible, and it's the first fruits of the first century barley harvest that Matthew 27 talks about. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll come back to Isaiah 26. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to begin reading at verse 50. So it's talking, we're picking up at the death of Christ. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many." Okay, many full preterists deny that this was actually a true resurrection into resurrection bodies. Uh, they think that these were recently dead people who just got resuscitated, much like Lazarus. Remember, he got raised from the dead, but it was not into an immortal body. It was uh, a body that could die again. But this is the only resurrection in the scriptures that Isaiah 26 could be referring to. It has to be a resurrection of bodies from the ground, and it has to be a resurrection that occurs at a time when no unbelievers rise from the grave. And there's three things I want you to notice in this uh, Matthew 27 passage. First of all, it speaks of a resurrection of saints, not unbelievers, only saints. 
<clears throat> Second, though the graves opened up on the day that Jesus died, the saints did not get resurrected till the third day. So they're not alive, waiting around in their graves, open graves for that matter, uh, to get resurrected. They get resurrected on the third day. Uh, so there's no contradiction with Acts 26, 23 that says that Jesus is the first to rise from the grave. Now, we're going to get back later in Acts, uh, in Isaiah 26, verse 19, and we're going to prove from Hebrews 10 that these are the words of Jesus where he says, together with my dead body, they shall rise. So it's on the third day. So Jesus rises, and these other saints rise with him. Third, their resurrection bodies are described in parallel with Christ's resurrection body. There's no hint that they have any different bodies than Jesus had. And I believe this is the only resurrection that fits Isaiah 26. Now let's go back to Isaiah 26, and we're going to look at a second clue. Second clue is found in verse 18, where it says, We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind, and here's the phrase I'm going to be commenting on, we have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Now the last phrase uh, shows again it's not at the end of history, but the second to last phrase shows that the believers who are being described by the we have not yet been delivered from the earth. The word delivered is Yeshua. You've heard Jesus called Yeshua, right? It's actually a word that means redemption. They have not been redeemed from the earth. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 speaks of our, redemption, of our resurrection as the redemption of the body. No redemption of any person had happened prior to verse 19, which means verse 19 can't be future to us because Christ coming up out of the grave was the fullest redemption par excellence, but um, it can't happen in AD 70 either. Um, Verse 19 happens in history when there has been no deliverance in the earth, no redemption from the earth at any point. Now this shows whatever resurrection is going to be described in verse 19 must be more than a mere resuscitation. How do I know that? Well, it's because many people had been resurrected in the, into temporary, you know, temporarily alive again, only to die again, uh, down through uh, history, and yet Jesus is said to be the first to rise uh, from the dead. And now simple logic tells us that if this redemption from the earth had not yet happened prior to verse 19, then Matthew 27 cannot be referring to a resuscitation of all these, these bodies. That would just be a repeat of things that had already happened. So let me list for you some of the resurrections that have been not into mortal, immortal bodies, but into mortal bodies, temporary bodies. In 1 Kings 16, Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. It was a real resurrection from the dead, but it was not into an immortal body. 2 Kings 4, Elisha raised another boy from the dead. In 2 Kings 13, 21, a dead man was thrown into a cave where Elisha was buried, and the moment that man's body touched Elisha's bones, he was raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, remember? But none of those resurrections were resurrections to immortality. Okay? They were not a permanent deliverance from the taskmaster death. They were not Yeshua. 
They were not redemption of the body. In other words, they were not the kind of resurrection that verse 19 will be talking about. That's a huge clue. Third clue is to look at the events that happened after verse 19. And they too rule out any resurrection other than the one that Matthew 27 talks about. Let's start reading at verse 20. Chapter 26, verse 20, through chapter 27, verse 12, deals with events. If you just want to put dating in there, it's between 66 and uh, 74, but I'll date each of these verses for you. And... uh, We can talk about it at another time, but verse 20 of 26 says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Now, the New Testament quotes this verse, so we know exactly what it's talking about. Just as Jesus had told his disciples that the moment they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they were not to go back into their houses, back from their field. They were to take off. They were to to flee uh, during that time. This calls upon God's people to hide until the seven years of wrath against Israel were over. So verse 20 is AD 66. Okay, now simple logic, when you're following through the time clues, indicates if verse 20 is AD 66, then the resurrection of verse 19 has to come before AD 66, right? Well, the only resurrection that happens before AD 66 is the resurrection of Matthew 27 in AD 30. So I think it's a very strong uh, argument uh, against um, uh, full preterism. Then verse 21 shows the first half of the seven years of wrath that followed. In other words, verse 21 goes from 67, AD 67 to 70, when Jerusalem was sacked, Israel was defeated. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And I want you to notice that last clause. After Israel is punished, it says the earth will also disclose her blood, will no more cover her slain. Now, this is a reference to the main portion of the barley harvest resurrection that we talked about uh, before that happened in AD 70. No longer would the dead martyrs be covered in the ground. They'd be raised. Some were raised in the first fruits of AD 30, but the bulk of that first resurrection harvest was in AD 70. Next verse, chapter 27, verse 1. What happens at the time that Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed? at the temple of the AD, at time of the AD 70 resurrection, well, we've seen Satan was cast into the pit. Well, that's what chapter 27, verse 1 says. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, Leviathan is a reference to Satan. And we have seen that he was defeated and cast into the pit in AD 70. Not the rest of the demons, not the rest of the demonic princes. They continued to harass us and to hang around, but Satan was bound at that point. Then verses 2 through 6. So I put AD 70 beside verse 1, chapter 27, verse 1. Then verses 2 through 6 promise that with the destruction of the old Jerusalem, the new Israel which is the Jewish church of the first century, would be destined to be protected by God and to fill the world. And I want you to look especially at the summary statement 
in verse 6. This is a promise to this first century Jewish church, which I believe was composed of the 144,000 and other early believers. It says, Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That's the new Israel's destiny. So you can put 80, 70, and following. Uh, beside verses 2 through 6, maybe even the 144,000. So this restarted the process of the worldwide conquest via the Great Commission. Next section is verses 7 through 11, shows what the state of Jerusalem, Israel, and the Jews would be after AD 74, after the war was done. And basically it says that the old Israel would be abandoned, uh, the Jerusalem would be desolate in absolute ruins, and so I wrote uh, 74 and following, beside verses 7 through 11. Then verse 12 shows that following that period, only a tiny remnant of Jews would be saved in the subsequent years. There will always be a remnant. Verse 12 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And then finally, verse 13 shows a subsequent regathering of Jews back into the land uh, in the future. So that's the general scope. Now you might have disagreements with little parts and pieces of that, but that's the general flow of the passage. The key thing is that verse 19 happens before verse 20, and uh, verse 20 is anchored in AD 66. So verse 19, let me just summarize this for you. Verse 19 deals with the AD 30 first fruits of the first resurrection what I call the barley harvest, while the main harvest occurred in AD 70. It doesn't deal with the second resurrection at the end of history. It's all one harvest, one resurrection, but in two parts. Now, if you turn with me to Hosea 6, there's one other passage that shows exactly the same sequence and predicts the third-day resurrection as well. By the way, 1 Corinthians 15, 4 uh, Gary read it earlier, predict, uh, said that the Old Testament predicted that on the third day he would rise from the dead. And commentators are puzzled. Where does it say on the third day in the Old Testament? Uh, there has to be scriptures, plural. Well, this is one of those scriptures. It's the only scripture that explicitly mentions a third day resurrection. But I want you to notice the we the we that is in this passage. Hosea 6, beginning to read at verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Paul is quite explicit that there are plural passages in the Old Testament. Commentators point out this is the only one that explicitly mentions. Jonah does it by way of symbolism, but this is the only one that explicitly mentions a third day resurrection. And so the we indicates that there are other dead saints who would be raised on that third day in AD 30. It would not just be Jesus. Then in verse 3 comes the prediction of the age of the kingdom that we live in. Now, I spent all that time, I know it's kind of technical stuff and boring stuff, but I spent that time so that full preterists cannot weasel out and say, no problem, it's a 70 A.D. Uh, resurrection. Uh, now, let's take a look at the verse. And the first thing I want you to notice in Isaiah 26 and verse uh, 19 
is that there is not a lick of difference between the resurrection body of Jesus and the resurrection uh, uh, bodies of those who were raised with him. Jesus prophetically says, your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. Well, an immediate objection that might come to your mind is, how on earth do we know that this is Jesus speaking and not simply Isaiah speaking? And that's a good question. There are several indicators that absolutely necessitate that this be Jesus who is speaking. Uh, for example, commentators point out that in the context, it is Jehovah who is speaking. And they have puzzled over that. How on earth can Jehovah be said to have a body? And if you're arguing with Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a great verse to turn to because Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus does have a body uh, that gets raised. And uh, there's other arguments uh, that uh, can be given. But the most slam-dunk proof, and this is by far the easiest proof for you to follow, is that commentators agree that Hebrews 10 verses 37 to 38 quote the next verse. In other words, they quote Isaiah 26 verse 20 together with Habakkuk and put the words of verse 20 in the mouth of Jesus. So, it, follow the logic here. If the my of Hebrews chapter 10 is capitalized, if it's referring to Jesus, and that is quoting verse 20 here, then consistency would say that the my of verse 20 should be capitalized. It's Jesus speaking as well. And if the my of verse 20 is Jesus speaking, if it should be capitalized, then the my of verse 19 should be capitalized. Now let me just explain the whole capitalization thing. Most versions don't even bother capitalizing because it's so difficult sometimes to tell. Is this a human or is this Jesus, you know? So uh, the New King James does so, and sometimes in the margins, the New King James will say, well, maybe it's a capital, maybe it's not a capital. They don't do that here. But thankfully, God by inspiration has given the interpretation. Okay, so capitalizing is an interpretive thing. It's not in the Hebrew. You will not find any capitals in the Hebrew. But God has interpreted the my of verse 20 as being Jesus speaking. That's the key thing that we need to understand. And there's tons of pages of complicated information that connect all these passages. You can read the commentaries on that. But my simple and easy proof is Jesus is saying these words in Hebrews 10. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary says, Christ's dead body being raised again is the source of Jehovah's people also being raised. That's the simple theology that this verse is teaching. Let me read that again. Christ's dead body being raised again is the source of Jehovah's people also being raised. But this is in a New Testament, I mean, a first century context. Uh, Stuart Russell, Moses Stewart's uh, book, uh, his commentary puts verse 20 as a reference to the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 66 through 70. In his commentary in Hebrews, he says, however, yet a very little while, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. That is, the Messiah will speedily come and by destroying the Jewish power, put an end to the sufferings which your persecutors inflict upon you. I know this has been tough, this introductory stuff, so let me summarize as simply as I can the context. If verse 20 is Jesus giving a warning of imminent judgment that would fall in 8066, which it is, Hebrews 10 says it is, 
Then again, verse 19 must come before A.D. 66. And if the my of verse 20 is said by Hebrews to be Jesus speaking, which it clearly is, then the my of verse 19 must be Jesus speaking. They're both capitalized. They should be capitalized. So with that in mind, I want to read verse 19 again. I just want to make a few comments. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. And let me show you how this passage definitively rules out every variety of full preterism that is out there. First, Christ's dead body is called a corpse, a carcass in the Hebrew. It's not a metaphorical reference to the church being the body of Christ. That would be a totally different Hebrew word. Uh, the Hebrew word here is nebelah, which refers to the meat of our bodies that rots, the meat of our bodies after we die. You could translate it as corpse or as carcass. Okay, The fact that Jesus has a corpse shows that he is truly dead, but his deadness and their deadness correspond. He is talking about corpses rising up out of the ground. So that is the first point that should give every full preterist a major migraine headache. Second, Jesus' rising and their rising corresponds. What is it that rises? Not souls here. I mean, souls do rise, but here it's corpses rising. Again, the Hebrew is nebula. And yet many full preterists have insisted that Christ's resurrection corpse was not his resurrection body and that our bodies will not have flesh and bones. They claim that 1 Corinthians 15 definitively proves there can be no connection between our old bodies and our new resurrection bodies. They will not be changed. Daniel Hardin says that these bodies are a shell to be discarded, not redeemed, not changed. John Bray says it is not the physical body which is raptured, it is the Christian himself who is raptured as he leaves his body behind and takes on a new body forever. And uh, like other preterists, he appeals to 1 Corinthians 15 to prove that we abandon this old body forever. We get a new spiritual body from heaven. So their claim is that our bodies are not going to come from earth. Our bodies are going to descend from heaven. Okay, there's a major uh, disconnect there. Uh, John Noe also appeals to 1 Corinthians 15 to prove this zero connection between the old and the new resurrection bodies, and he says this, His work of resurrection has nothing to do with reconstituting decomposed or even alive human bodies at some unscriptural end of time. This tradition of men, like others before, has made the word of God of little or no effect. Well, this says the exact opposite. His words are a contradiction of this. He says resurrection has nothing to do with reconstituting decomposed or alive human bodies. What's a corpse? Okay, uh, It's corpses that are raised here. Now I'll deal with their false claim that spiritual body means a body made of spirit, a spirit body in a moment. But I want you to notice that the same corpses that are in the ground are raised. Did Jesus have a corpse that came out of the tomb? Yes, he did, and people saw it. Did other people have corpses that came out of tombs that they could examine, that they could touch, that they could see? Yes, they did. Uh, I don't know how they can get around that, but they do attempt to do so. Daniel Hardin claims that Jesus' resurrection happened before his old body got resuscitated and that the spiritual body temporarily inhabited his old body, but that the old body was not permanent. It would get discarded. 
okay? Once his disciples are convinced he's raised, then there's no point in having this old body. From then on, he appeared in his spiritual body, which is like angels, is what he claims. So he says, Christ was resurrected not so much by the act of reanimating his earthly body, but by escaping death and Hades. Now, wait a shake. What, what, what came out of Hades earlier? It wasn't the body. It's a soul. Yet he says that's what was being resurrected. But anyway... Christ was resurrected not so much by the act of reanimating his earthly body, but by escaping death and Hades. Christ's reanimation of his earthly form wasn't the resurrection itself. It was the byproduct and proof of his resurrection, and even Christ was not raised to be in the flesh. He was raised into the same body he used before he died. This was done to prove to the disciples that he had kept his word. He now appeared to his followers at need having the same properties as angels. And I say, no, 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 no. This is exactly what the early church was so opposed to, was Gnosticism. This is exactly what the Gnostics uh, taught. What gets raised in this verse? Corpses. What came out of Christ's tomb? His corpse. And though Christ's resurrection body was glorified flesh, it was still flesh and bones, just as Rodney said earlier. How do we know that it was glorified? Easy. He was able to walk through locked doors, through walls. He could just walk through them. That's not what our bodies can do. It's glorified body. But how do we know that the very body that walked through those doors was flesh and bones? Because Jesus said so. He had them touch his body after having walked through those walls. Now, certainly it was glorified flesh and bones, but it was still flesh and bones. And I want you to flip with me to a few passages to see this. Look at Luke 24, and this, this is a very important passage for dealing with JWs, dealing with all kinds of people, but Luke chapter 24 and verses 39 through 43. Okay, verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He's seeing, saying, in effect, look, I'm not fooling you, it is I myself. Who is the I myself? Well, it has to include at least the feet and the hands that he tells them to touch, the side that he told them to touch. It has to include his physical body. So let's keep reading. Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. To claim that this is not Christ's resurrection body is to involve Jesus in deceit. That's just basically what it is, this deception. He was having them handle his flesh and bones to prove that he had been raised. Why? Because the Old Testament had prophesied over and over again that there would be real corpses raised, real flesh, sinews, rotted flesh that would be raised. For example, Job speaks in Job 10 and 11 as being knit in his mother's womb with skin, flesh, bones, and sinews. He uses the same words in Job 19:26. He says that when this, this flesh and this skin has rotted away, future to that, God is going to resurrect that same rotted flesh, and in my flesh I will see Christ. He makes that very, very explicit. This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And he goes on to yearn for that resurrection day. Jesus explicitly says he had flesh 
and bones in his glorified resurrection body, and anything that denies that is desperation. Okay, I want you to turn next to John 2, just a couple pages over. John chapter 2 and verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. What was raised? Not some new and totally unconnected body. It was this temple that he was living in. The very body he was speaking to them in. That was the temple of his body. Now look at Romans 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He is not going to give life to a body that is not mortal. You know, the bodies that they claim, you know, were raised in 8070 that are waiting for it. They're not mortal bodies. He's giving life to a mortal body. And I want you to notice the also there. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, our mortal bodies will also be given life. He also indicates that Christ's mortal body was the thing that was given life, not something else, and therefore our mortal bodies will be given life. See, that's quite different than having bodies floating around in heaven ready to be plopped upon us when we die. That's not our mortal bodies being given life. Now, I do not deny that we might be given temporary bodies when we die. There's a lot of debate amongst evangelicals on that. There's one passage that might indicate that. It talks about our house from heaven, 2 Corinthians 5.1. And some people say, well, that's a body from heaven. But even if you were to interpret it that way as a body from heaven, that's different than the bodies that are raised from below. And so even if you were to interpret it as a body from heaven, that's the direction is coming from heaven to earth. And the most important point is it's clearly before any resurrection that the preterists even believe will happen. It's before 8070. The moment people die, they're clothed with that house in heaven. I just think it's heaven itself that's the house. So I think all that's fairly clear. But how do we deal with their nuclear weapon? And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 because we're going to go through a bunch of these verses. It is so important that we understand how to explain these verses to them in a very simple and easy way. They think 1 Corinthians 15 verse 44 completely rules out any possibility of our having a physical body. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And then they'll take you down to verse 50 where it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So they put those two together and they say, well, Christ temporarily had flesh and bones, but since flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he must have discarded that body. And we can't have it, obviously. And so they think this is their nuclear weapon. This is the definitive proof that we have spirit bodies, not physical bodies. Well, let's deal with the phrase spiritual body first. Their interpretation of spiritual bodies is made up of spirit. It is not a body made up of bones and flesh. Now, apart from that being a definitional, logical fallacy, 
It fails to fit the context at all. Let me just deal with the definitional fallacy. A spiritual body, interpreting that as being a spirit body, which is quite different, is about as fallacious as speaking about a square circle or an immaterial material or a bodiless body. It doesn't make any sense. It, it violates the law of non-contradiction. Of course, the whole context, well, let me just explain what it does mean. People say, okay, well, what is a spiritual body? Sure sounds like it's made of spirit to me. No, what is a steam engine? <clears throat> a steam engine is not an engine made of steam. You know, it, oh yeah, this is a steam engine, it's not made of metal. That'd be ridiculous. People know immediately a steam engine is an engine that is powered by steam. It is made for steam. It is characterized by steam. And in the same way, a spiritual body is a body that is made for the Holy Spirit to be controlling. It is governed by the Holy Spirit. It is characterized by the Holy Spirit. It's not like our natural uh, bodies. So anyway... Uh, a spirit and body are quite different things. That's the first uh, problem. And the whole context of the chapter shows this to be the case. So take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, according to Hardin's view, he wasn't buried. His body was not the real him. Right? That corpse was not the real him. That was something he would later discard. The real him, according to Hardin, was his spirit. But according to Paul, he was buried, and the same he that was buried was raised. Verses 5 through 6. That he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. What was the proof that he was raised? They saw his body, just like the disciples. They were able to handle, touch him. They, 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 they saw his flesh and bones. Now, how important is it to get this right? Look at verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And then he goes on to show in the next verses that Christ was the first fruits. What is a first fruits? In the barley harvest, which was the first resurrection, the wheat harvest is the second one, but in the barley harvest it was divided into two parts. There was first fruits, and then there was the main harvest. Well, you take the grain of barley in the first fruits, it's going to be the grain of barley in the second. You cannot say that the, 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 the second part of the harvest is different than the first. If Christ is the first fruits, barley, then our, the, 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 the resurrection of the saints is going to be barley. Right? It's going to be the same kind of thing. Anyway, he goes on to say that Christ must remain at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under his feet, the last enemy being death. Well, I still see a lot of enemies out there. So I would have to say death has not yet been put under his feet, which to me means the second coming has not happened. And they say, no, no, no. Second coming happened in AD 70. Death was put under his feet then. 
Every other enemy was finished. He's completed his job. He put down all things, subdued all things under his feet, and he's handed over the kingdom to the Father. I think that is patently ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. All enemies have not been defeated. In any case, the, the word first fruits necessitates a resurrection of the same kind of metaphorical grain later. Then in verses 35 and following, Paul tells us that the relationship of these bodies to our resurrection bodies will be somewhat different. In fact, it'll be so vastly different, it's like the difference between a tiny grain of wheat that you plant in the ground and the full stock of wheat, which is like the resurrected body. So they're different, but they're related somehow. One flows from the other. You cannot have the plant, which would be our resurrected bodies, without the seed, which is our mortal bodies. The one is changed into the other. It is not replaced by something different. Verse 36 says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What is made alive? The very thing that dies. Verse 37 says, You don't sow the full plant, you sow the seed. So with that context, let's read verses 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. What is raised in incorruption? The very body that died or was sown. It's the same it all the way through. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Can you see how that it's our old body that is transformed and made fit for the Holy Spirit? He's not saying that the old body is discarded and we get a non-body body. Remember, a steam engine is not an engine made of steam. It is characterized, controlled, empowered by steam. And praise God, there is coming a time when our bodies will be resurrected, so finely tuned with the Holy Spirit, it'll always do the Holy Spirit's will. It'll be perfectly prepared by the Spirit to do His purposes. It is only the old flesh and blood of fallen humanity, what Paul calls the natural body, that verse 50 says cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the natural body can't stay natural. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Natural body must be changed. And the full preterist version of resurrection bodies made in AD 70 simply cannot account for that word changed. Jesus had flesh and bones in his resurrection, yet he inherited the kingdom of God. But it was a transformed flesh and bones. And again, in verse 52, it says the old body will be changed. Verses 53 through 54, corruption will put on incorruption. But there's some connection between the corruption and the incorruption, or it would not be changed one to the other. The mortal puts on immortality. It's then and only then that death is swallowed up in victory. So the bottom line is there is absolutely no contradiction between 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah 26, verse 19. It is corpses that will put on immortality. And just because you cannot understand, just realize your mind is puny compared to God's, right? Just because you cannot understand how a cremated body can be resurrected, its ashes have been scattered around the world, eaten by fish, just because you cannot understand how that can happen is no excuse for wiping away the clear language of Scripture. We can trust that God can make enough connection between the transformed molecules of our old body that he starts with, you know, the seed, 
and the resurrection full plan. And that's about the difference, by the way, between the dust that God made Adam out of and the little rib that he made Eva out of. There wasn't much, and they didn't look like Adam. But God, who controls every atom of this universe from the beginning of time to the end of time, he can preserve at least some portion of our old body to be resurrected. He can do it. Well, let me make another point from Isaiah 26, verse 19. Contrary to full preterism, both Christ's resurrection and the saints' resurrection was a literal resurrection of physical substance up from the ground. And that's already been implied in the corpse word that we looked at, but there's a couple of other proofs. First, living in this verse is explained by arising. Arising. There's not a body from heaven being put upon people. That would be descending. This is arising. Second, something is said to awake in this verse. Souls do not need to awake. Uh, we don't believe in soul sleep. Now, the last phrase will deal with spirits, but spirits are quite conscious. They're talking with each other in, in Sheol, the Old Testament Hebrew word, and Hades is the New Testament. For example, the rich man and Lazarus, they were talking. They talked, you know, the rich man talked to Abraham, and uh, I'll give in my footnotes a whole bunch of scriptures showing people both in hell and in paradise talking with each other. Third, in verse 19, who awakes and sings? It's something that resides in the dust, not in Sheol, but in the dust. Now, this is one they could get around. They could say, well, Sheol was in the heart of the earth. That's a sense uh, in dust. But the scripture does not speak of Sheol as being in the dust. What is it that returns to the dust? The curse in Genesis 3 was you are made of dust, to dust you will return. He's referring to the bodies. It's a curse. Genesis 3 is quite clear on that. And the context shows that. If you take a look at uh, Isaiah 25, verse 12, we just let Isaiah define his own terms. What does dust mean? Isaiah 25, verse 12, the fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. So there, dust is literal dust. Every commentary agrees with that. It's in parallel with ground. So bringing the fortress down to the dust means leveling it to the ground. Um, same in chapter 26 and verse 5. For he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. And again, interpreters are clear. Dust and ground are parallels. The dust immediately under our feet. Fifth, look at the last clause, which says, And the earth shall cast out the dead. Now that may seem like it's referring to exactly the same thing, resurrection of bodies, and some people take it that way. If you want to take it that way, that's okay. But it is actually a different word that many interpreters, and myself included, believe it refers to conscious spirits and Sheol. And some translations actually translate it that way. They translate it, The earth shall cast out the departed spirits. So that indicates there's two things that come up out of the ground. There's corpses and there's spirits. One is physical, the other is non-physical. Okay? Well, just as this passage distinguishes between two things that came up out of the earth in AD 30, bodies and spirits, Acts 2, verse 27, that Gary quoted earlier, quotes Psalm 16 as applying to Jesus, and it has Jesus saying, for you will not leave my, what? Soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Souls don't see corruption. The word corruption just means rotting. It's bodies that rot, not souls. 
And bodies aren't in Sheol. Souls are in Sheol. So he's talking about two separate things here. God did not leave his soul, the immaterial part of him in Hades, but brought it up. And he did not allow his body to rot. He preserved it and brought his body up. So two things being brought up, souls and bodies. They both were raised. But another point that needs to be made from this passage is that the body is so essential to who we are that uh, God expects us to long to have that body redeemed and restored. And this is where we finally get into the practicality of this passage. Um, he wants us to value the physical creation. In verse 18, the corporate Israel had not yet been redeemed or delivered from the earth. According to Romans 8, the redemption of our bodies is just one part of the redemption of the entire creation, which groans and travails. Uh, there's going to be a new heavens and the new earth after the second coming. Now, full preterists sometimes sound like they want to escape from their bodies, escape from this physical world into a spiritual world. But God's plan is the exact reverse. It is heaven invading earth, transforming earth, and God's plan is to make redemption reverse every effect of the fall, far as the curse is found. So far from discarding this body, as Daniel Harden words it, Scripture promises to redeem it. There's quite a difference between redeeming and discarding. And actually, it is interesting. If you start reading in these full preterists, you know this doctrine of dominoes, they are forced to say, many of these, these full preterists, that the possibility of bodies dying did not happen to Adam and Eve because of the fall. You, you can read it all through their literature. They say death was natural. Let me quote a couple of people here to that effect. John Noe says Adam and Eve would have physically died even if they hadn't sinned and been cast out of the garden. That physical life wasn't lost in Adam, therefore it's not restored in Christ, nor will it be. Physical death of the old physical body remains the natural consequences of being created human. So they are saying, in effect, oh, death was natural. That was a part of the good creation before there was any fall. Of course there was going to be death. There's no curse that's involved in the death of our bodies. That is astonishingly bad theology. But more importantly, they do not see any aspect of this physical creation as being redeemed by Jesus. Remember that they believe all prophecy has been fulfilled. And so forever and ever throughout all of eternity, so far as they know, there will be people being born, living, sinning, being redeemed, dying in the same physical world. And our goal is to escape this physical world to heaven. It's an escapist theology. According to them, we want to escape from this world and live in heaven forever, not to live in a redeemed world. Okay, the best answer to give to this, I think, is Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. He shows how heaven and earth will be merged and how we were actually created to be in a physical creation and that this physical creation will be redeemed. Now, he's pre-mill, so he has slightly different takes than I do on some passages, but it's a fabulous, fabulous book. So my question to the full preterist is this. Did Abraham receive the promises of the land? Simple question. And you will find this is a question that will give them a big headache. God promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan. 
If Abraham did not inherit the land while he was alive, which Scripture is crystal clear, he did not, and if he's not going to be on the physical earth, there's no redeemed earth for him to inhabit in the future, then was not God a liar? I think it forces a person to say that God did not fulfill his promise to Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 39 is quite explicit about the fact that Abraham did not yet receive what he had been promised, but if there is an end to history, which we affirm, and if planet earth is groaning from the curse and will itself be redeemed one day, as we affirm, and if heaven fully invades and is merged with the earth, as we affirm, then Abraham will indeed inherit the promises because he is going to be on planet earth. In fact, uh, it's the whole world that he inherits along with us. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the point is, redemption is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. As the hymn, Joy to the World, words it, redemption goes far as the curse is found. And to deny the resurrection of our bodies is to deny the curse impacted our bodies, which, of course, they do. But back to the main point. What are some evidences that the body itself is a part of us, is important to the definition of who we are, that we're not complete without our bodies? Well, first, in this verse, Jesus speaks of his corpse, dead as it is, as what? My body, my corpse. It belonged to him. It was a part of who he was. Second, he speaks of their corpses as belonging to them. He says, your dead bodies. It's the plural for dead. Their bodies were a part of who they were. Third, it is in some sense you who dwell in the dust. Verse 19 says, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. So the bodies in the dust are some way a part of the real you. We're not Gnostics who escape from our body and from all of physical creation. Your body is an essential part of you. You are incomplete without the resurrection. Fourth, God wants believers to rejoice or to sing over this resurrection. It is something to be celebrated. It truly is the reversal of the curse, since the curse on Adam was stated this way, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So all of these corpses, they had returned to the dust, and so the body itself was cursed. I think Genesis 3 is quite clear on that. Well, this verse promises to reverse that curse, and therefore the resurrection should be rejoiced in, anticipated with joy. We should not have the attitude of one full preterist who said, we're not interested in this old body surviving. We should not have the attitude of another full preterist who said, our emotional attachment to our bodies will be no different than our attachment to those body parts we cut off and discarded last week, hair and fingernail. I would say this passage commands the exact opposite. It is commanding us to have a full investment emotionally, be emotionally engaged with this marvelous aspect of re redemption. It should make us rejoice and sing. Even the physical universe will have every aspect of the curse removed, including thorns and thistles and blood-sucking mosquitoes. Psalm 103, verse 3, identifies the image of dew as an image of the blessing of heaven coming where? Coming upon the earth. And so this passage uses an image of heaven's blessing impacting the physical earth when he speaks of the reasons for joy as being this. For your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. John Oswald, in his commentary, rightly says, God's dew will rest upon the dead as he will forth force earth 
to give them up to life in his presence forever. Now you might think that the molecules of some of your relatives have been lost forever because they've been cremated and their ashes have been spread. But uh, God will force the earth to give back those bodies as only he and his omnipotence can do. But again, the image of a blessing repacing a curse shows that death was not a natural part of creation. Death is called the enemy by the Bible. And Jesus conquered that enemy in his resurrection, and he promises to conquer that enemy in our future resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, if the only, if the only um, death that was reversed was the death of our spirit, because they said the body would have died anyway. That was not part of the curse. What died? Adam's spirit. So if that's the only part of us that was affected by the fall, then when, when Paul was re regenerated, the curse was reversed. But he says, no, that's not enough. There's still the redemption of the body that needs to happen uh, in the future. It's future to him. Anyway, Alec Modier in his commentary says that there's absolutely no way of getting around the fact that this passage speaks of a literal resurrection, of literal corpses, out of a literal ground, and a reversal of a literal curse. And 1 Corinthians 15 promises that we will have a literal resurrection of the same kind at the end of history. Revelation 20 words it. There's two resurrections. So first resurrection, the rest of the dead do not rise till the thousand years is finished. There will be a resurrection at the end of history. So that's the meaning of the passage. Let me quickly end with five more applications. First, value this physical creation. God made it. Jesus plans to redeem it. Second, don't be pessimistic about how far Christ's redemption can reach. 1 Corinthians 15 says that his grace will eventually subdue all enemies, put all things under Christ's feet with the only enemy that will be remaining when he comes back as being death, and that will be conquered before he comes back. Because we're going to be caught up in the twinkling of an eye to meet him in the air, then will be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. So it's while he's coming back, we're going to join him. We're going to join the army in, in, in conquering earth. Well, the implication then is every other enemy must be subdued before death, before his second coming. That means we can have confidence that even the physical creation will more and more enter into the blessings of the covenant as the gospel moves forward. I am fully convinced that as nations are fully converted to Christ, they fully live out the scriptures, and we have a Christian world the curse will have less impact upon planet Earth. In fact, uh, Scripture indicates people will live longer. Animals won't be, they'll be vegetarian. They won't be eating one another. There's going to be all kinds of benefits. Third, don't fear your own death. You can plan for it. In fact, Rodney gave a great sermon on why we should ordinarily insist on a burial and not a cremation. Now, can God resurrect cremated bodies? You already know. I believe that he can. I don't know how, but I think he can. But cremation is a kind of disregard for the body, a disregard for the resurrection. It's almost like spitting in the face of God on this question. It is a disregard. Plan for death is a part of this world's curse, but don't fear it. And for sure, honor the dead bodies of your relatives with a good burial. Fourth, remember that Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. If his resurrection was important, so was ours. 1 Corinthians 15 shows that a belief in the resurrection is a critical doctrine, and to deny it is to deny the faith. 
And then finally, if God values the physical creation, we should increasingly take dominion over it. God is restoring man more and more to the dominion mandate he gave to Adam. And when Adam failed, he sent the second Adam, Christ, to enable his church to succeed in this dominion. So value the study of science, true science, creationist science. Value medicine's advancements. Exercise, eat well, take good care of your body. Be a good steward of God's creation. God values the creation, and so should we. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Complicated as it sometimes is, it does give us the answers for all of life. And I pray that we would more and more value your physical creation that you made. Not despise it, not escape from it, but take dominion over it. Bless this, your people, and their efforts. In Jesus' name.